actually think our bodies are pretty smart. We didn't all just get ADHD overnight. We didn't all just get super anxious or super depressed overnight. I think we've created a world that our bodies can't live in. In reality, with expectations, with this husband and wife roles shifting underneath our feet and watching our parents age and our kids be born. We just don't have a roadmap for the new terrain we find ourselves in. And I think that anxiety is simply a smoke alarm. It's just an alarm system letting us know, hey, we're not okay. And how would I tell a single mom with two kids whose whole life is a blender without the top on it? Here's a way that's going to help your day be a little bit more peaceful. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Big Time Adulting. I have an awesome guest here with me today. If you are not following him already on the gram, you might be after today, Dr. John Deloney. And we're going to get deep on some stuff about anxiety, mental health, feeling better, being your best self, because this is really what John is all about. And he's got 20 years in this space helping people feel better about themselves. So, John, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you so much. Uh, I told you off air. I'm super starstruck. Oh right my now. god! Can we tell everybody how we met? Yes. I was sitting in my house, and I your Instagrams just kept coming up, and I was laughing so hard. My wife came out and goes, "What's so funny?" And my wife like will walk out of the room with the, when a Will Ferrell movie comes up. She's like, she doesn't think any of that's funny. And so I hand her the phone, and then she starts dying laughing. And you have brought so much joy into my living room. It's just oh, so great. That's... it's so great. You say things that everyone's thinking and no one will say out loud. That's so, so nice. Honestly, I, I just don't have much of a filter. I can't help but say things most of the time. <laughs> just got to tell the truth, man. Awesome. But you're really good you about telling tell the, the truth. truth. Like Before we launch into some like questions about your expertise and the way you help people, what's your experience with like your own personal anxiety, I guess, that we start there? Maybe the best way I could say it, it's unnerving when you feel betrayed by your own body. Um. I want it to do a certain thing, and it just says, hey, we're, I'm out, I'm out. And that's, um, it's a disconnect from you and yourself. It's hard. And um, for me, I mean, I've been a six foot two, 195 pound Texas male my whole life. My parents are still married. I mean, um, I, I kind of have it all laid out on a platter. And I spent my career working with students, especially those um, that are struggling and those on the margins. And I thought, man, if this happens, if it's happening, to me, somebody who's just had kind of the world laid out for him. Um, my gosh, dude, there's something wrong with the with the with the water that we're all drinking because this doesn't make any sense. Yeah, angst really doesn't discriminate. Like I know, like in my own life, I think people look at me as like kind of a, a like laid back, happy go lucky type of person in a lot of ways. Um, and then there are times where when I feel like my angst at its height that I can't get out of my own way and I can't get out of my own head. You have a book that just came out called Building a Non-Anxious Life. And in the book, you you map out like six daily choices that people can make to help with angst. And I just wonder if you could go through some of those and talk about that. Nothing a mother of three wants more is to six more things they have to do every day, right? <laughs> Touche. The narrative we've got about our bodies over the last couple hundred years is that we're all malfunctioning in some way. And psychology is the study of what's wrong with us and how somebody else can swoop in and fix us. And then as insurance companies have come on the scene and it's been increasingly medicalized, the language, the diagnostics, the way that we interact, the systems all kind of work together. 
we've continually been told that, hey, if your body is feeling this way, it's wrong. Something's wrong with it, and you need to go, quote-unquote, fix it. I actually think our bodies are pretty smart. We didn't all just get ADHD overnight. We didn't all just get super anxious or super depressed overnight. I think we've created a world that our bodies can't live in with, in reality, with expectations, with this husband and wife roles shifting underneath our feet and watching our parents age and our kids be born. We just don't have a roadmap for the new terrain we find ourselves in. And I think that anxiety is simply a smoke alarm. It's just an alarm system letting us know, hey, we're not okay. And culture says, hey, just shut the alarm off. Or if you're uncomfortable, um, everyone else needs to help shut your alarm off. And so I've stopped going to war with my body. And so the six choices are like me taking all the ancient stuff and all the neuroscience and trying to distill it down. Like, how would I tell a single mom with two kids who's just whose whole life is a blender without the top on it. Like here's a way that's going to help your day be a little bit more peaceful. And that's all we're going for. Or an over the road trucker. He wants to be a present dad. He doesn't even know what that means. Cause his dad left when he was two. Here's something that can like a roadmap to help bring the temperature down in your house. And so real quick, it's just, you have to choose reality and you have to choose connection. We have the loneliest generation in human history. We have a, a distraction economy that, that just, that, the moment you get anxious, it's like, look over here, look over here. Um, freedom, if you, if, if you have to choose freedom, and I don't mean that like in the American flag, underoos kind of way, like the pew pew and the eagle flying across the screen. I mean it more like the, we're the most indebted society in human history, and we did it to ourselves as, as a narrative. That's, that was usually a tool to capture groups of people and get them to do what you wanted them to do, and that's just how we live. And so if you map the stock market and you lay it on top of, uh, of the last hundred years and you lay it on a map of mental health diagnostics, and prison population, which I think depression just is expressed differently in men often, it almost tracks entirely the same. Mm -hmm. They just sit on top of each other. And so if you owe $150,000 in student loans and a million dollars in your mortgage and you have two car payments plus the the hunting lease and plus the other thing, your body would be failing you if it let you sleep all night because it knows if you say one dumb thing wrong at work and you're fired, you lose your house and you lose your food and you lose your groceries – and so you have to choose freedom. I think you have to choose mindfulness, and we can talk about that. That's not like an old guy on a cloud. That's that's a uh, that's a just being aware and being curious. And you have to choose belief. You have to be a part of something bigger than yourself. Um, but if everything's chaotic and their alarms are going off all the time, you and I have both been there. You can't breathe, and you can't show up with your spouse. You can't show up with your kids. You can't show up with anybody. And so it's just how how can I far can I get upstream? What little things can I do? Um, sometimes big things, so that when life comes, I've got some margin. Will you go a little bit deeper into um, the belief that there's something bigger than yourself out there? Yeah, this was the um, most, <laughs> this was the hardest chapter for me to write because I didn't want to put it in there. And then I felt I was hedging my bets on both sides. So I've spent most of my career in higher ed with like the, some of the smartest thinkers in the world. And my dad was a homicide detective for half my life. And then he quit and became a minister the other half of my life. So um, I spent my, my childhood roots are in um, a small local church, a medium sized local church. And then my work roots are with a group of some of the most brilliant, kind, lovely atheists in the world. And ultimately I landed in this place, if you go look at the psychological theories, um, especially the big dogs, right? The goal here is self-actualization. 
you get this and you get this and you get this layer and you get this next layer. And then you arrive at this magic moment where the self can finally be the, 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 the shining um, crystal on the hill. And if you look around, we're actualized. We have everything. We have, you have a million people who have clicked on your account and said, we're friends with Caitlin. Um, the, I, you can, the, the idea that you can communicate with a magic wand in your pocket to a million people, that's like not, <laughs> that's not, uh, there's no evolutionary psychology for that. That's new, right? Um, the, you can punch a button on your phone and food just shows up. You can turn a knob and water comes out. We've solved for these big things that have plagued humanity for centuries and centuries, millions of years. And so we've gotten pretty arrogant about this idea that the world revolves around us. And we are actualized, and what we're finding is the self, the self was never designed to hold up the universe. And so if you take a, like an evolutionary psychology, a, a, like reverse engineer this, every society in human history up until about 200 years ago went outside of their tent and looked up at the sky and said, Dear God, please rain or my kids die. Or Dear Gods or whatever series of things. And Esther Perel writes on this beautifully, those gods told us who we were going to be and what our roles were and who had what jobs. And there was a ton of abuse and oppression in those systems, but they gave us some sort of direction. And over the last couple of years, we clipped all the strings. And so now we're tethered, we're untethered and we are just worshiping as David Foster Wallace says ourselves. And when, if you worship beauty, you'll never be beautiful enough. And if you worship money, you'll never have enough. And ultimately you start worshiping how you feel and then you get down this wild rabbit hole, and all of a sudden you've got a big mess because um, everyone feels something differently. And so ultimately it's about stepping back and saying, hey, you were never designed to hold up the planet, whether it's belief in God in Sunday school, or you are some of my Muslim friends, or you're some of my atheist friends who believe in birth and life and death and the cycle of nature, whatever it is. You have to have some sort of practice where you regularly take a knee and submit. Open your hands and let go. You cannot control the world. You will get a call that says, honey, this is your mom and I'm sick. You will get a call saying, hey, your son or daughter is not okay. We need you to come by. That call is coming and holding onto the universe as though you control it um, is a way to make your mind bananas. And so choosing belief is I'm intentionally going to lean into something bigger than myself. Yeah, I I, I totally agree with you. And I think even like, like you said, if you don't believe in a a God or, um, sort of like that higher power idea of, um, you know, religion or whatever, something organized, even if you just think about the, the, the massive expansiveness of the universe and how big this place is. And, um, not to say like how we're insignificant, but that we're part of something that's that's huge, you know, so that like sometimes we worry so much about our own problem or something that's like taking up space in our heads, right? And it's just to to think about it from a perspective of there is just so much more out there beyond ourself. Like, just get out of your mind for a little while. Just yeah. think bigger, right? Well, it, it takes your eyes um, out of your belly button, mm-hmm. and it lifts your head up to see the rest of your neighbors and your friends and the f- people in our communities that are on the margins. And 
those that are doing really well, but their marriages are falling apart behind closed doors. Like everybody, right? It, it helps you lift your head up. And it reminds me of that old um, C.S. Lewis quote. I'll butcher it here, but it's like, what's the definition of friendship? And it's somebody sitting across the table going, oh my gosh, I thought I was the only one, right? That's friendship. I always feel like there are immediate steps that I can take to bring my angst like back down to even, which is typically moving my body, like bring my heart rate up, not like in a, in a way where I'm exerting myself so that there's a, a come down of that heart rate, you know, that happens physiologically. Like you, you have that, uh, I think, do you do it every day? You have like a hilarious dance that you post. I do a lot of dancing. With some regular. I do a lot of dancing. But here's the thing. Every, every culture across human history had a joint community celebration as a way to celebrate, as a way to mourn, as a way to process in, in like a nerd way to cycle through those chemicals once they've kicked up. Once your body sounds the anxiety alarms, it's fight or flight, it's go time. And dancing literally is a cultural practice that we just plucked out of our society and we just went to the golf clap and it just doesn't work as well. Or we went to Netflix and it just doesn't work as well. Like what you're doing is like ancient practices for being whole. I think it's so rad. <laughs> Thank you. Um my account would get flagged because it would be uncomfortable for everybody <laughs> to watch. I don't know. Challenge. I'd like to see it, John. One of these days. Nope. 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 Not great. Um, Not great. I, I also like with anxiety, like repeating a thought in your mind and not letting like it go. Right. It's just like, it's, it's holding some real estate there and you can't get, get it, get it gone. Um, I, usually would like take that thought and think that it was a sign of what was to come like in the future, right? Like this thought is, is, is telling me that I have to, you know, prepare for this doom, you know, that's in front of me. And I think I finally realized like at some point, like even if this doom did happen that I'm so worried about all of the time, would my sitting here worrying about it ever change that outcome? Like, would that ever in a million years, the amount that I think about this have any effect on whether or not this event happens or not? It's like, you're not controlling the world by thinking about what you think could happen, right? Yeah. Uh, Brene Brown calls it dress rehearsing tragedy. Oh, yeah. As though I can practice it in my head over and over, and then if my kid gets sick, I'll be ready for it. Yeah. And having shown up with too many moms in too many awful situations to give bad news, there is no preparation for that. It, there's not. And so what you end up doing is robbing those few precious moments of joy in anticipation of future tragedy as though you're practicing it. And then when you get there to that tragedy, whatever comes, um, you're you're still not prepared for it. And so it's something about saying, I have to understand that that rumination is a complete and utter waste of my time. It feels like productive, helpful pre-planning. It's not, it's a, it's really, it's a, it's a cigarette. It's a drink. It's a way for my body to not be present with the challenges that I have right before me. And sometimes those challenges are my two kids annoy me and they're really boring. They're so boring. So boring. And um, I, don't have a, I don't have a roadmap for boring and love in the same sentence. So I go to 
I'm going to just make sure I'm ready for the apocalypse when it comes. And so I'm going to run through scenarios where my daughter's explaining to me about her wolf dragon thing that she's created. So it's, it's a numbing device. And so I have to be pretty intentional about um, having alternative routes out of that. Like outside of the anxiousness and like the conversation around anxiety, you often on your Instagram page, you speak a lot like directly to men and fathers, I, I think, or I perceive that to be. And it's not exactly necessarily what society is used to hearing. Like we don't see a lot of men um, speaking about their role as a dad that often openly to a large audience. And you're kind of like a badass guy. Like you got tattoos, you play the guitar. <laughs> um, but I wanted to hear like your thoughts on being a dad. Yeah, I, I, I think um, I have a great, amazing dad. And there's some things I want to be very intentional about doing differently with my son and with my daughter. And I thought that kids learned best by being lectured. And I thought kids learned best by being scolded. And what I've come to find out is that kids learn by watching their adults in their ecosystem. So if I want to teach my son how to treat a woman in society, then I need to make sure that I really honor that exhausted waitress and really honor his mother and really honor um, that woman at the cash register and vice versa with my daughter. And so I, here's the honest truth, Kaylin, what we're doing is not working. It's not. We have a bunch of adults screaming and yelling at each other, and I don't want that for my kids. And the only way I can teach them that is to model something different. Can you get a little more specific? Like what, what are some certain things that like you're doing differently and, and how you might do that differently? Whether it's like, what do you do in a moment where you really want to lose your shit, but like <laughs> you stop yourself somehow? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> So I have this vision of my kids wearing a backpack at all times. And I have a vision of my wife. By the way, my wife was Dr. Deloney long before I was. And so she's, <laughs> she's so much smarter. It's, 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 you know, guys like, no, my wife's smarter. Like, I'm not just doing that to like, she's so much smarter. And so um, I imagine her with a backpack and I've got one. And all of us were born with stuff. Um, whether, you know, you're born the wrong side, you're born in poverty, whatever. Um, or you had great parents, but they had three tools in their toolkit. And so they handled every problem with a hammer or every problem with a screwdriver. I, every time I yell at my kids or I scream at my kids, I scare my children. And their body puts a GPS pin in that moment. That guy's not safe. Or worse, I'm responsible for the emotional regulation of the adults in my household. If you live in a house where your husband's like, hey, don't say that. Mom's going to get really mad. You're telling a nine-year-old, it's your job to regulate the emotions of your mom. No kid can carry that weight. And so every time I start to get mad, and I, <laughs> I found myself having like a louder than I was comfortable with disagreement with my seven-year-old daughter the other night. And I literally, at the back end, I said, and I don't know why I'm arguing with someone whose frontal lobe literally doesn't work right now. <laughs> and her response was incredible. It was, 
Whenever I call for you, Dad, you're never there for me. And she ran up the stairs, and it was amazing. It's just so uh, pretentious and obnoxious. It's incredible. I love it. Um, But I have to know every time I lose it, I am picking up one of my bricks out of my backpack, and I'm dropping it in my kid's backpack and saying, you deal with this, because I couldn't. And I just won't let them do that. And so for me, I'm not great in the moment, honestly, and I've learned that about myself. And so my goal is how can I do things upriver? How can I create a relationship with my wife? How can I create a relationship with a group of men that I trust? How can I create a relationship with a counselor that I trust? And I see my counselor. She's amazing. She's an oracle. When I find um, that I'm snapping and I'm being frustrating and I'm about to lose it, um, I have to remember that's never my kid's fault. There's nothing my seven-year-old can do that overrides my system. If my system gets overridden, that's on me. Um, And so I, I... I don't know if that's helpful, Caitlin. I think if you find yourself yelling, you find yourself upset, you find yourself always angry, it's almost never about what's happening right now. It's almost always a lack of a control. You feel like you're, you can't you help your kid who's struggling. Your marriage is falling apart. Or you're about to lose your job. What Your partner's not helping you in domestic stuff. Like Whatever it happens to be, it's almost never this little kid's fault. You're a bigger person than I am, John. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, no, you're right. I mean, how could it be, right? They're too little, too innocent, really, to have that they should be able to have that kind of effect on your emotions. We should be the bigger person. I can't say that I always am. Oh, none of us, none of us are, right? But hey, and also in our, in our, I keep blaming culture as though it's just like this mean guy in, in the corner of the room, but our kids have become our report card. Yeah. And if, if our kid doesn't uh, doesn't swear too much and our kid doesn't smoke cigarettes and or if our kid makes good grades, then we get an A. And, any, and we just if they're good at sports, we get an A plus. And if they're good at horseback riding or whatever, um, we have to stop using kids as a band aid for our own inability to look in the mirror and be happy with what we see. It's not that's not their job. They can't carry that weight. We have to do the work and say, why don't I like me? What is it about me or my marriage or my work that? I, I just can't be in the same room with. And so I offloaded all my kid to my 13-year-old boy and said, hey, hey, Hank, you carry this for me because I can't. Um, they're not our report cards, man. They're, they're little people that we love. In, in life, in marriage, it, from ourselves, uh, what what do you what do you think this like this non anxious life can look like for people? What's the vision of that? How do we? <laughs> You're asking it. <laughs> the way you ask that is so great. It's like, so John, tell me what Hogwarts yeah. looks like. What's it's this like, imaginary it's, uh... place that. <laughs> You're talking to me like I'm at like a psych eval, and you're the psychiatrist. And you're like, tell me, John, about the dragons you see. Um, I uh, maybe this is the best way I can say it. Like, my granddad was a World War II vet. He fought Nazis, right? He was like, I don't remember. I don't even know what he did, but I know he was involved heavily in whatever they were doing. Um, he had a picture of what peace looks like that wasn't that, right? And he came home and sat down in his recliner and he opened up his newspaper and then he went to work and he opened that th- paper up. But And his body was dealing with all that trauma, but he had a picture of what peace was and it was not that. I think we're a couple of generations removed and our picture of peace has become, I don't want to be uncomfortable. And 
I don't think that's a healthy place to build a life from because the only things that have any value at all in our lives start from a place of discomfort. You don't go to the gym and take all the weight off the bar. Um, you don't look up 20 years later and be married to somebody and having never had a disagreement, never had to bury a, a parent, never had to go to a funeral of a, of a loved one or a buddy, um, never been fired from a job. You don't. You only get that depth through locking arms and going through trial together. And so I think it's reimagining what life can look like. And so what if you built a life where you fell asleep at night when you were tired, you just went to bed and that you weren't so attracted to Jim Halpert or Ted Lasso, because those are the only two like decent guys left in the world. And they're not even real. They're imaginary, right? What would it look like to wake up in the morning and have coffee because you wanted it and it sounded delicious, not because I have to have this, or I'm going to murder my youngest child, right? Uh, my wife started this uh, a few years ago and it's transformed our home. We have a long meeting about holidays in September, and then she sends an email out to all of our families and says, this is when John and Sheila and the kids are traveling. This is where we're going to go. This We are going to host. We're not. And then we let the adults that are our family members decide if they're going to kick and scream about it or be upset or get their feelings hurt. They're adults, and they get to do that. What we're going to do is set boundaries that is best for our family during this season right now. And what we found is a lot of the things we anticipated – and nothing happened. Everyone was really grateful for the boundaries and everybody works together on that. That's not true for every family I know, but it's living a life with boundaries and intentionality. So what I want people to think of when they think of a non-anxious life, for everybody that looks different. Some people have a million dollars in their account right now and they're gonna hear this podcast and be like, we need to have some conversations. And some people look up and say, I've been, I'm fourth generation deep entrenched in poverty and I don't even know what tomorrow looks like. Um, is there a roadmap out? Um, the answer for everybody's yes. The answer for everybody's we all need someone to sit down across the table from us and say, are you okay? Um, can I reach a hand across the table? But it's about building a life so that when life hits us, um, we're okay. We're there, right? And hopefully you hear my voice. It's just, I'm just talking about it. Everything kind of settles down a little bit. Um, and it's just a life of warmth. Yeah, it's hard because there just are no guarantees ever in life with anything, right? So all you can do is uh, your best. And that's like the, I think from my anxious perspective, like the biggest challenge and what I continue to work on every day is to like do the living in the moment thing, not that does not mean cherish every moment. That just means like live <laughs> in the moment, you know, like whatever this is right now, I'm here. I'm not somewhere in like the future, you know, the past, whatever it is. I'm kind of, I'm trying to be in the here and now and doing what I can today. Tell me about your son. My son was diagnosed with leukemia when he was three years old, and he's my oldest. He's nine years old now. He's about to turn 10. He went through almost three and a half years of treatment, and um, the pretty much day that he finished his treatment, the pandemic started, so we were like shoved back at home. Um, so it was just like a lot of angst and a lot of survival mode. Um, one of the things that I like when I was feeling so anxious every day about health that whole next year after he finished treatment, just like it was, and it was my own health that I was worried about. It wasn't even his health. I had like this confidence that he was going to be okay, but I was like, I'm going to die now. <laughs> um, yeah. 
And I call it the flywheel. It's like your anxiety spins. And once you solve for one, it just moves to the new yeah. thing. And you solve that one and it just goes to the new thing. That was the whole premise totally. of the book is how can I get way upstream and just shut the whole flywheel yeah. off, right? Yeah, T- exactly. It's just like you find something else to worry about. Um, something, a, w- a weird, maybe kind of fucked up thing that I would take some solace in is is that notion that that life can change on a dime though. That like, hey, I could be so worried about all of this stuff, but I could also walk outside and get hit by a falling branch from a tree and die, <laughs> you know, like right. something that I have right. absolutely no control over or wouldn't that's not something that would would necessarily make me worry it's just like the likelihood of these things that I'm worried worrying about are just as much as that basically like but I'm not worried about that but it could have the exact same outcome so like stop fixating on these certain things that you worry about you know if you were to ask me what's the most important psychological finding in the last hundred years, I would tell you um, every every nerd would have a different answer. I would tell you Martin Seligman's work. And here's what I love. For a long time, they thought you know you're born Eeyore or you're born like in a good like you're just Take you know that, there's always that person that, yeah just that person named Shannon at work and she's just always happy oh. and you're just like good she has a basket on her bike and she still rides it to work even though she has a Tesla too like it's just that person. And like, she was just born that way. I'm just not her. And then there's that dude at the office. And every time you're like, Hey, what's up? And he's like, did you see what happened with the market over the weekend? And we're like, Oh my gosh, he's a genius. He's so like into it and dark. And he listened to nine inch nails when he was a kid, like, like that guy, like, um, Seligman showed that those aren't like traits wired into us, that those are learned behaviors. Optimism and pessimism are learned behaviors. And, Another word for learned behaviors is choice. I can practice over time to walk outside and say, a branch may follow me and I may die. Or, dude, there may be a lottery ticket that somebody scratched off and dropped right out there. Like, I get to pick the story. And I get to practice that over time. Your default setting will begin to shift. And that to me is the purpose of mindfulness or being present is less about being present and more about practicing I'm in control of my thoughts over time if, I, if I'll put that work in. And that's hard, man. That's really, really hard. Yeah, it is. It is hard. It's that whole, yeah, if you can coach yourself to have take a certain nav- narrative, live in the moment, that sort of thing. It takes time. It's not, I'm not there. I'm by, by no means like any like Zen master over here. <laughs> before I let you go, I have to ask you the question that I ask everybody before they leave my podcast, which is what's your favorite snack? Oh my gosh. Listen, listen. I need to go to a 12-step meeting about gummy snacks. I have a problem. A problem. Um, I would, like, rub them on my face if I could be by myself with them. I love I love any gummy snack. Do you have is. a top one? Is it, like, the gummy bear? Is the gummy bear the god of the gummy snack? Or? <laughs> I like the gummies in the shape of actual f- fruit. And it says on the box or on the package, no real fruit inside. <laughs> I love those. I'll sit at the store for an hour um, trying to figure out what monastery the chicken I'm buying was raised on and how many like monks hugged it every day before they, they gently welcomed it to slaughter. <laughs> and then I'll grab like five bags of gummy candy on the way out. It's so stupid. It's so dumb. It's, a, it's called balance. It's good. It's all good. My wife says I'm like living with a taser. It's not good. So I, <laughs> some balance would be good. I'm going to work. 
Well, it was awesome to have you here, and I loved getting a chance to chat with you. And um, and people can find you at John Deloney on Insta at, or on your website, which is johndeloney.com. Hey, thank you so much for your hospitality. I'm really grateful. Anytime. Awesome. I'll talk to you soon. All right. Awesome. Bye, John. All right. Take care. Thanks so much for being here. For more information on today's episode, visit my show notes. And if you enjoyed it, leave me a review. Now get yourself a snack.